Warning, this show contains adult themes and language, including grown adults failing seventh grade biology. Disevidentia is an inability to reliably process evidence, and this is a podcast all about it. This episode was released on July 21st, 2021, and we are discussing disevidentia because it is clear millions of creationists are suffering from it. I am Squeaky. And I am Mako. We discuss logic and evidence because there is insufficient selective pressure against creationists. You can support us by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash disevidentia. If you spent all your money on an expedition to find Noah's Ark, you can still like, subscribe, and leave a review to help us out. If you have a paper you have written or a small business to plug, let us know. The small business of the show is Too Real VR. They are a small game developer out of Alberta, Canada. Their new game, VR Astro Smash, is on Steam with direct links in the show notes. Go to Steam and search for VR Astro Smash if you want to fly around in space and shoot stuff. Today, we are going to discuss our interview with the Rock Doctor and to debunk a little bit of creationism. But first, I'm going on a rant. This show contains adult themes and language, including im. Im. We spent all that time proofreading. We left that in there. On July 8th, I was in the hardware store. I was buying some material to make a ramp for my dog to climb into bed easier. Shasta is getting old, but still likes to lay on me and my SO's feet, even when it hurts her to jump into the bed. While we were discussing screw prices, another shopper, a kindly-looking older man in a fisherman's hat, sparked a conversation. I don't recall exactly how. Perhaps his claims that gang violence, or, I am quoting, illegals driving up the prices, was the reason... Screws were more expensive. Never mind that this was the store charging more than the one down the street and had knowledgeable employees. No, it had to be someone nefarious. Some other to fear. Over the course of a brief conversation, he brought up a picture of George Soros. Without prompting, he claimed Sweden was a cesspool of crime, that the U.S. has the best health care. He claimed no country other than the United States had opportunity to start businesses or speak freely. Let's mostly ignore how anti-Semitic conspiracies are generally baseless, and Soros is a billionaire who certainly committed real crimes, so we don't need to concoct fake ones. Let us also gloss over how we have whole episodes debunking some of his talking points. To pin that real quick, episode 5 was mostly about American gun crime, episode 8 was about how shitty it is to be a worker in America, and that episode 11 was about how we ranked in the 40s among developed countries for healthcare and really should be doing better. Links for these are in the show notes. Let's slide past how nearly every country has freedom of speech and that we rank 44th in the Reporters Without Borders Freedom Index. So there are at least 43 countries that do freedom of speech better than America. This person was conversant, building something, planning, aware, and able to use a smartphone effectively. Despite having access to all of this cognitive power and instant access to information, they still insisted on the nonsense I stated previously. And, much racism I won't go into further about Middle Easterners. But also, this next part. They insisted American slavery wasn't bad. They insisted slaves weren't whipped or abused. They claimed Benjamin Franklin was a slave, and they claimed 
to have personally been a slave as well. Slavery Particularly, American chattel slavery was abominable. Even the pathologically neutral Wikipedia describes it as generally brutal. I found no evidence Ben Franklin ever spent any time as even a servant, let alone a slave, and this person was certainly never a slave and likely confused working any job with slavery or just lied to my face. For whatever reason, this old, white man with money to spare at the expensive hardware store had seen it important to put himself on the same level as chattel slaves. I doubt this person was lying about everything. But even if he was lying to me about the most extreme views, so many of what remains are common talking points that I would be hard-pressed to draw the line between his lies and his mistaken beliefs. I know that many have come around to the idea of disevidentia as a topic and real deficiency in their peers' cognitive function, but many still think there are some magic words to convince some of these people, or that these people don't actually believe this stuff. This person is real, and he is one of millions of people with ideas that don't map onto reality, and is holding those ideas in spite of strong evidence that they are likely aware of. Simply by virtue of meeting this guy at large, I can never be the person to change his mind. Only a deep emotional connection will get this person to even start accepting evidence. If he has no one close, and never befriends someone closely, there may never be someone to help him. This is why we all need to learn. We all have someone close to us. We can't really change anyone else's mind unless they want to change it. We need to have millions of conversations to help the 40% of this country that disbelieves evolution, the 15% accepting that the election was rigged because Q said so, and the scattered millions who think the Earth is flat, and so on for every horrible cognitive failing we have. The alternative is what we have been doing and letting this harmful bullshit spread. We had a few cases where our recording programs just crashed immediately when we hit the record button. Yeah, then we'd turn and face each other and have a conversation and be like, ah, crap. You just waste 20 minutes of conversation. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Sean Hodges. He studied uh, general geology at Oxford University, uh, studied volcanism, geochemistry for a PhD. He goes by Rock Doctor, and he's worked in the oil company for a very long time and very qualified to answer a lot of our questions. Is there anything else you'd like me to put in there before we dive into questions, Dr. Sean? No, sounds very impressive. Thank you. <laughs> I think you have more education than me and Mako added together. Uh, yes. <laughs> education doesn't count for very much. What do you do with it? Smart things, presumably. Talk to smart people on the, on the podcast. We're trying. We're trying. A lot of people are telling us this, but not the people who need to be hearing it. Well, you always need a geoscientist. We're the fundamental science. <laughs> we sit underneath the floor of your house, wherever you are. Sounds foundational. <laughs> Sorry, that was terrible. <laughs> okay, so we brought you on to address a, a couple common sets of talking points. In America, it turns out that about 50% of people are creationists, as in they think the Earth is some thousands of years old. 6,000, as I understand. 6,000 is the most common one, but Jehovah's Witnesses put it at 15,000. Oh, how progressive of them? They're getting there. They've only got mm -hmm. another 4 billion to go. Okay. And then there's a whole right-wing contingent that denies that climate change is real, and the ones that have acknowledged it is real deny that it's anthropogenic, human-made. And then of those that acknowledge it is that humans contribute, there are plenty who still deny that it's a bad thing or concerning at all. Ugh. Yeah, you've got your, you've got your uh, work cut out then. 
I certainly do. I'm going to have to have a lot of conversations with a lot of smart and hopefully educated people. But starting off really simple. Uh, are fossils real? And you can answer that in numerous different ways. First one is, what do you mean by real? Are you denying that the fossil is the original creature, because in most cases it isn't. It's uh, uh, like a, a replicant. Uh, the original tissue is long gone and been replaced with other substances like uh, silica quartz. It turns out that if you do it slow enough, you can replicate down to a very fine detail. So we get to see really fine structures inside animals that are hundreds of millions of years old and there's no trace of them left today. But as far as we can tell, it has to be based on something that was real in the first place. And the older we get, the worse the quality of preservation is because the rocks have had such a long, complex history. Okay. So you get primitive creatures back in the Precambrian billions of years ago, and they were just jellies. So you're lucky if they make any mark in the rock at all. And then you go through dinosaurs that everybody know about. So I would say to someone, if you're faced with skeleton that you've carefully dug out of the rock, and it was very different to the rock itself, so it's not... You're not just carving a skeleton out of rock, you are excavating a skeleton. And then you look at it and it resembles modern quadrupeds. Uh, you've got to start thinking, surely this is real. Unless you've got a very capricious god that's trying to trick us. And that goes into another philosophical area. That is exactly where a lot of creationists go. They usually don't put god there, but I've, I've had people say this to my face. right? Physical, not anonymized over the internet. But I've had people tell me to my face, fossils were placed there by the devil. Yeah, I've been told that once before as well. Yeah, you get into existentialism where, you know, you can't trust anything. The whole of science is based on nothing. You're in an area you can't argue. You can't trust anything you've ever been told. Any physical evidence can be rejected on the basis of it's created out of nothing. You run out of ways to counteract that. But you, you then start digging into the philosophy of why doesn't, um, why does the devil do this? And, and Well, for the lols. Why doesn't God stop him? <laughs> yeah, for the lols. <laughs> But, you know, we've, uh, we, our fossils go all the way through to um, completely preserved uh, mammoths from a few tens, thousands, tens of thousands of years old. So they're just sort of dehydrated and frozen and they dig them up and the meat is edible. This is what the Russians have known for years is that you can actually eat. Didn't the Explorer Society find one in the 1890s? Like they found it in like the mountaintops in France. I wanted to double check the facts here. It looks like there wasn't a time in the 1890s when the Explorer Society ate mammoth. And there was one time in the 1950s where they thought they did, but some genetic testing revealed that to be a ruse. Check the show notes for details. On the other hand, Utsi looks quite edible with both the texture and consistency of jerky. I still wouldn't eat him. They're always finding them. And we recently found a, a fossil man. It was frozen. Utsi, the uh, Iron Man. I probably shouldn't eat that. Frozen into a glacier for... You could have done that. <laughs> you know, it's basically like jerky. Oh, goodness. That's... One wouldn't want to, but, you know, we've, we've got fossils that are so uh, so close to the original that you can take out DNA, and if you wanted, you can eat and digest. Wow. So, you know, from that, that one end of the spectrum all the way down to we think some of the shapes in a... Three billion year old rock were probably caused by assemblages of single celled organisms. Um, and then everything in between. So we've got, you know, sort of fabulous hard part fossilization of all the shells, the crinoids, the ammonites. You know, we, we've got this spectrum that goes from the deepest, most heavily buried rocks with the oldest dates 
that we know have the most primitive fossils, and we presume they represent primitive organisms. And then it goes through a beautiful progression of gradual change all the way through to fantastic preservation. And then we also get the little anomalous ones called Lagerstätten, which is exceptional preservation at any age. So largely in the um, last few hundred million years. But the Archaeopteryx was one of these, right. where the fine-grained mud preserved feathers of a feathered dinosaur. Just a moment. We've got some terms in here. Amenonites? Those are, those a, are the little spiral shelled ones? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Ammonites. Ammonites. The, the Mennonites are a religious Oh, are they're the guys in religious Pennsylvania. Sect, the, yeah, sorry. <laughs> and a related one is the Nautilus. And we have now discovered that these uh, one of the species of Nautilus still lives today. So these are the fossils. Fantastic. So these are things where we found the fossil of a creature before we found the creature still living today. Another one is the coelacanth, which is this incredibly primitive bony fish that was found living quietly offshore South Africa. They live way down in the bottom of the ocean, and we only found them in like the 30s or 40s, didn't we? That's right. And we'd already seen fossils of them and assumed that they were long extinct. You know, that's kind of predictive. We found a fossil of a thing we didn't know existed. And then later on, we found, oh, it still does. I'm sure that helps the authenticity of fossils, being able to compare the living organism. Anybody that doesn't have a special reason not to believe, like a, a, a religious person who happens to have a religion that has a sect that says they can't be real, finds them the most compelling and internally consistent set of data from which to then develop all that we know about evolution and individual lineage developments, and including the development of modern-day man. So we've, we've got a fantastic fossil record for almost anything you want to track the evolution of, going backwards in time. We've got all sorts of ev- uh, evidence for very recent evolution of living things. It, it all ties together so unbelievably well that you you have to be willfully denying not to believe in it as what it seems to be. What it appears to be is uh, a record of once living animals now extinct. And there's almost no one that doubts that. And for our listeners who didn't know, Dr. Sean Hodges can say that with confidence because he's not in America. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We we have our own small numbers of doubters, but uh, not so many. I think I think the the variety of Christianity that has taken deep root in America is is a special kind. <laughs> I agree. It's my understanding you have different forms of disevidentia on your side of the pond. Something, something of Brexit. Lots and lots. <laughs> yeah, that one at least has the benefit of um, some rational arguments being made on both sides. Uh, there's a lot of lies being told, mainly on one side. But uh, you know, it's it's a political de- debate. There's not so much debate about the facts as opposed about the interpretation of the facts. I like that you can separate political debates from factual debates and Americans can't. We're having factual debates. I'm sorry, we're having political debates about factual topics. People are basing their votes on whether or not they think we had a good response to COVID or whether or not they think we should wear masks. So painful. Mm. Oh, goodness. Well, you've got your Christianity's also become inextricably tied up with politics. So you've got um, once you've chosen your red or your blue team, then you are obliged to believe a whole set of facts that are, are non-negotiable. It, it comes with the uh, with the color chosen. I don't specifically disagree. I think there's a bit of nuance in there. But yeah, there's a very strong correlation. There's actually a an atheist Republican group. There's dozens of them. 
Right. Dozens. Yeah, that keeps things interesting. <laughs> well, atheism's on the rise everywhere, so there's going to be people on both sides, I guess. Yeah, no, it just... Uh... For the longest time, these people were claiming to have millions of people on their roster. And last year, they had to publish for tax reasons. They had to publish their membership list. And there were seriously 300 of them. And they've been claiming millions of Republican atheists. So they're just off by a few orders of magnitude there. Oh, we're... Right. Sorry? They're a very small subset. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so being in the oil industry, there's a really small crossover there with fossils. And we'd heard about, like, the Suncor... Uh, what is it, the Suncor Notosaur, where they dug a whole big old fossil out of the ground. But it's our understanding that isn't always common. Did Have you worked with any fossils you've dug out of the ground or been near teams doing that? Well, you're exactly right in that there isn't a great deal of crossover. I mean, um, geologists in all companies go on field trips because that's how we uh, learn about the, the geology of the areas we're looking at. Either we look at the edges of the basin that we're drilling into and hope it's outcropping in a useful way. That That would be the best. But quite often we look for a, an analogous basin that we can learn from and then apply to our, our inaccessible undersea basin. Um, so on the, field, on the field trips, we sometimes find fossils. Pardon? A term. Which term are you after? Outcropping? Outcropping, uh, where the rock hits the surface. So like you can see the layers because they're sticking out from above the ground. Yes. Okay. Uh, a good example would be one of the countries I worked in in the Middle East, Oman, down on the uh, tip of the Arabian Peninsula. And we were exploring in the big basin, which is the same one that the Saudi Arabians are exploring in and finding their big fields. We got the edge with the small fields, but we also um, had the edge of the basin had been lifted up and eroded due to uh, some plate tectonics. And it was an absolute perfect area because it was hard desert. And we we all did field trips down there and we were driving around in rocks that were at a gently tilted angle, but they were all reaching the surface. And you could just walk around on the stuff that was six kilometers underground where we were exploring. Wow! So that's the most likely time for an oil geologist to come across a fossil while doing their while doing their business but when you're when you're exploring an oil basin you shoot seismic which is sound waves that you send down pick up the reflections do insanely complicated processing to turn into an image of the subsurface but unlike um ultrasound which we use to do the same same the same technique but using different wavelengths on on a pregnant woman's belly, you get high resolution with the ultrasound. We send down wavelengths so big that the smallest thing you could see is about 30 meters on a side, and that would be good seismic. So we don't see fossils with our imaging technique, but we also drill holes through the rocks because we want to pull the oil out of the holes. Um, The old-fashioned drill bits would cut the rocks into what we call cuttings, chips, and they're millimeters to maybe half a centimeter again you don't see very much if you drill through a standard hand specimen sized fossil you won't see anything in the chippings and they've now moved over to more efficient drill bits that are just diamonds as in tiny specks of industrial diamond in steel and they spin that round and what we get out is rock flour so absolutely no chance of finding any fossils in that every now and then just for the listener you said a millimeter to half a centimeter oh you need some um, american Freedom units. I have a ruler here. That's uh, about a 32nd of an inch out to about a quarter of an inch. Right. (laughs) I should just use things like fingernail sized (laughs) international units. It's why we measure piranhas and how many cows per second they can eat. So the best seismic resolution is around 100 foot on a side, which is a bit bigger than most fossils. And you wouldn't see even a tyrannosaur fossil because you would just see see it as a single pixel on your image. 
So, yes, the best chance you've got is when we drill a core, which is done a lot less often than you might think because it's very expensive. Basically, rig time is $100,000 an hour. Wow. And drilling a core is very slow. Yeah, we have to find a lot of oil and um, in uh, good reservoirs that flow very well to pay for the cost of a multi-million dollar well. But occasionally we do demand that we, uh, the geologists insist over the driller's resistance that we want to cut a core. And then they have to put down a, a circular apparatus with a, a ring of cutters around the edge. And we drill a big cylinder and then we tilt it sideways and snap it off at the base and haul it out. And in that, you can occasionally find a small fossil. But it's quite anomalous. But we do use fossils. The way in which the oil industry uses fossils is microfossils. And there are, we've discovered, lots and lots of them. And some of them are fantastically useful because they evolve very rapidly. So if you've got land-based sediments or even shallow water sediments, they'll have pollen grains in. The experts we've trained up can identify not just what the pollen grain came from, but the age of that pollen grain because they evolved tiny little features on their outside over relatively short time spans, like a few tens of thousands of years. So they can draw up charts that give us the, the, the age of the rock to some degree of pre precision, which is very useful when you're doing fine-scale exploration. You mentioned, when we were talking earlier, or in some notes, you mentioned specifically a glober globigerina? Globigerina. Globigerina. Is that... Yeah, it's a, it's a small um, floating organism with a, a thin-walled it's basically a little blob from an oil industry's point of view. It contains the material that can become oil. So these things live and die, and then they sink down to the bottom of the water column. And if they're buried and don't get consumed, a layer of them can build up and you heat and squish that hard enough, it will turn into oil. But they are also usable as a means of dating. Details like this highlight to me why disevidentia is so prevalent, right? We have on the conservative side, people who absolutely deny that the world is old, but absolutely say that oil is the most important thing. And we only have oil because the world is old and you've narrowed it down to a single organism. And it sounds like a fancy cyanobacteria. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, I don't know which kind it is. It's, it's bigger than a bacteria. It's visible with the naked eye. Oh, so it's like, like an algae or something. And the glob at the beginning is a clue. It's a global, it's a little cluster of glob, global blobs stuck together. Ah, okay. But that's just one of many. I mean, you've you've um, seen pictures of the White Cliffs of Dover. Yeah. That chalk is hundred, hundreds of meters thick. And it's composed of similar microorganisms called coccoliths. And these little tiny um, carbonate, yeah, snigger. Mako is looking at me and shaking his head. He's like, don't, don't do it, Squeaky. He was thinking something childish. I, I wish I knew the Latin or the Greek that was coco. Uh, but the lith is rock. And you, you build these things up over a phenomenally lo long length of time, tens of millions of years. And these little things are raining down and they are growing in deep water. Uh, nothing else is growing, so you get an exceptionally pure rock, which is nearly all coccoliths, and it builds up and builds up and builds up. And at the same time, the weight of it is compacting and squeezing it down. And, uh, you know, that single organism pretty much built the White Cliffs of Dover. Anyone can get a microscope and look at these things. You know, there's no, there's no shortage of ability for the, aver the amateur to find out some of these things. You just need to borrow a microscope and have a look. That's amazing. Right, so it's more complex than a single organism, but there's lots of a general category of this aquatic plant life that turned into most of our modern petroleum. Okay. Yes. Okay. So there's, and, and what's more, they know that broad categories of things like uh, the, the floating bugs that like I'm describing, they tended to produce the oil. 
um, plant material. So if you if you were near the land and there was a river regularly flooding off a tropical rainforest and bringing up tons and tons of of uh, woody material, that tends to produce gas. It's what they call a gas prone source, as opposed to a a more fat rich. So little living creatures would tend to produce an oil prone source rock. Now, when you say gas in this context, you mean natural gas, methane. Yes, okay. yeah, methane. Yes, not in the American sense of what you pump gas into your car. Oh. I'm trying to not make the childish jokes. That was a perfect Taco Bell joke, there, and I'm just moving on. That's for the best. Okay. And I should make the comment that the oil industry is short of these microfossil experts. And uh, if, if you can get into that field, I hear that the work is unending and the wages are good. I would feel dubious. Like, I've worked ethically dubious jobs before. The last military contract I did, I actually wrote software and I sat in an office and the, the office's title was Nuclear Mission Planning. I'm allowed to say that, but anything oh, yeah. else is, is classified. I'm not allowed to say anymore. But I really, I just have to work things where my conscience is totally clear now. You know, some people are swayed by the money, or some people even make a difference when they're on the inside. I've run out of energy for that. Mm. Well, the, um, you know, the oil industry is now bad. Um, <laughs> everybody seems to be pretty clear on that. But you have to say, it's bad now, but you go back. 50 years, there wasn't any alternative, really. We were going to have to release a lot of carbon to have enough energy to make the progress we've made. You're totally correct. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. It bootstrapped our ability to do research and look into these other energy sources. And we didn't even know definitively until like the 80s or 90s that it was polluting at all. Well, I think we knew a lot longer ago than anybody liked to admit because it was just too damn convenient to keep going as we were. We had a very big established infrastructure. The energy was cheap and nice. But it became more and more undeniable that we were harming the planet. And I'd say even more visible is cutting down all the rainforests and Ooh. fishing out the seas. You just couldn't, for a long time, you could ignore it because it was far away or it was underwater or just invisible to us. But there's so many highly competent scientists going out there, taking images, bringing them back and shoving them in front of our faces saying, look what you are doing. That David Attenborough being one of the, one of the finest, you know, I've, he's telling us over this long, long life, everything's gone. All the animals have been killed. That's a really good distinction to make because you're right. We did know it was polluting. We just didn't know the scale of the harm. We could find ways to ignore the scale of the harm. Even when armed with the evidence, we had people saying it's not so bad. And we had lots of people who were presumably experts ignoring large swaths of the evidence. Or not shouting loud enough to be heard or, or the environment wasn't suitable to be heard. I mean, we uh, we were exploring what was called west of Shetland. So on the, on the UK, off the coast of northwest Scotland, um, near the, um, uh, the outlying islands, uh, we shot a load of seismic. Um, and part of the imaging you get is the, a picture of the seabed in quite good resolution because the high frequencies are still present in the signal. And we could see all these lines all over the all over the uh, subsurface, you know, the seabed, I should say. And it wasn't clear to us what it was. We were speculating if it was uh, glacial scars from uh, icebergs dragging, and a few of them were. But actually, it turned out to be bottom fishing dragging chained nets across the floor of the ocean as they try and catch every bottom dwelling creature. And they'd been across it so many times that it had what looked like scratches in every direction. These things had been trawled north, south, east, west, up, down, left, right. There was nothing living down there. We've wiped out hundreds and hundreds of square miles of, of the seabed just in pursuit of fish to eat. And it's hard to believe the scale of damage that we're doing, largely because if you fly over it or sail on it, you can't see any of it. 
Unfortunately, it is out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> I don't know. Hmm. So we've talked a ton about fossils and a lot of this more creationism debunking stuff. I think the last little bit there is discussing plate tectonics. Creationists don't usually deny that plate tectonics exist, but every once in a while they do. How do we know that plate tectonics is real? Uh, you've discussed a little bit about outcroppings and you've mentioned it before. What can we add on to our, our knowledge so we're armed if such a discussion happens near us? I suppose you could think about how the theory came about. I mean, for ever since we've been able to make maps of the world, people have observed the close fit that you'd get if you closed up um, oceans. So as soon as people looked at maps of, say, North America and, and Europe and Africa, they noticed that you could slide them together and they'd fit. But they absolutely had no idea that there was any way you could ever move continents, not surprisingly. But more and more, there were issues in geology that could only be resolved by some kind of horizontal motion. So you had mountains. Mountains are very difficult to explain except by one lot of rocks moving towards another lot and then they all crumple up. And you see stunning folds in the Rockies and the Alps that show huge layers of rock, hundreds of uh, feet thick, that have been contorted like they were just a layer of uh, fabric that you've slid. If you had a, a carpet and you just held one end and slid the other end towards it, you'd get a great pile of folds. And if you imagine doing that with rocks and they don't just if you do if you go slow enough, they don't just break. They uh, they will fold, especially if they're buried under a lot of other rocks, which stop them uh, doing anything other than slightly deforming. Um, and then you erode the top off. So you know rivers and weather. Sounds like you're describing the way the Rockies and Himalayas form. Absolutely. So we see what looks like rocks being squished together and piling up to make uh, folded stacks. And then the, the typical shapes of mountains are largely from erosion. So once you've pushed up a big pile, then you erode it and you get all these uh, sharp edges and rivers cut down to make V-shaped valleys and glaciers make U-shaped valleys. But they're all just taking away from the pile that was pushed up by this motion. Again, you know, this is just describing what we see. This is not saying how it happened. But um, what we understand now is that there is a heat source inside the Earth, and it's pretty clear that that is not just from the cooling. Cooling is a small component, but radioactive breakdown seems to be the source of most of the heat that drives the convection. So when you have um, uh, molten wax or just heated water that you can see, um, see particles in it, or, or when you're cooking a soup and you can see stuff is moving in a, in a sort of circular motion, it, it goes near the heat and then it gets lighter and less dense and it rises up to the surface and cools off. And when it's cooled enough, it sinks back down. So this convective circulation happens inside the solid earth. We've given it a heat source and it, it's complex because people don't think of the earth as being a liquid. It's a solid rock. Only the inner core is a, a liquid, sorry, the outer core is a liquid. But the mantle, the rocky part on the below us, but above the core, it is a solid rock. But if you wait millions of years, it behaves like a liquid. If, if you apply a stress to it, the individual grains of mineral, will, the, the atoms in the crystal structure will creep past each other. So the, the mineral dip will deform over geological time and it will look like a liquid if you had the ability to speed up the, the, the video by millions of times. So we have this flow. So it's like tar pitch or maybe old soda glass, the glass that would flow very slowly, like over the course of decades or like that pitch drop experiment that we hear about. The, the pitch drop experiment is the best example. I think the glass um, idea has been debunked. It is. It, it, hmm. okay. it doesn't actually flow. 
people used to just mount the um, mount the irregular pieces of glass with the lower the thicker bit at the bottom just naturally so everybody assumed that it was flowing down but it doesn't flow at those speeds so it turns out glass doesn't flow like at all i was just totally wrong here there are several reasons to think it might but they're all wrong also i put three sources in the show notes including a fiber optics group and a glass museum glass definitely doesn't flow and i feel silly for having believed this for so long but the pitch drop is brilliant because they've done that experiment and they've had it flow over decades and rocks flow on an even slower scale. But uh, so what we have is the oceanic plates. And again, can't remember how much people remember from their high school geology, but we have a different kind of plate under the oceans than we do under the continents. So the oceanic plates are just the top surface of these convective cycles. And then the continental plates, the, the, the crust, that's a different composition. That's like the slag on top of a container of molten steel, for example. So this stuff just floats around on the top. It never gets dragged under down into the earth because it's too deep, too light, too too low density. Is is that so, because dirt and like the continents are made of silica and the mantle is made of like iron and nickel and stuff? Or do I have that chemistry? Pretty much. It's, okay. No, no, it's it's correct. It's the um, it's the proportion. So there's more silica and aluminium in the rocks of the continents, and more magnesium and iron in the rocks of the uh, of the oceanic plates. And they used to abbreviate that to Sial and Sima, which is silica, magnesium, and silica aluminium. But that that's a rather old-fashioned terminology. It's basically the minerals are different. And the good thing about the continents is. Um, they end up like slag. They accumulate all the stuff that doesn't fit into the minerals of the of the mantle and the oceanic crust. So they, they get all the good ones that we like, like copper and gold and platinum and steel and every, not steel, but um, every mil- every element you want is is concentrated in the continents. Um, Even the uranium? I would imagine that would sink being absolutely. so heavy. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is where it's handy being a geochemist, because it's not about the density in most cases. It's much more about the shape of the the ions. Most minerals can't take very large ions into their structure. So uh, they t- end up in the liquid. Whenever you melt the rock, it all ends up concentrated in the liquid. This is getting deep into geochemistry, but su- suffice it to say the, the heavier elements are often very incompatible with the minerals that are in the depths of the rock, depths of the earth. So the mantle rocks don't like taking things like gold and platinum and uranium into their mineral structure. So they all end up coming out with lava and then just staying on the surface. Okay, okay. I think I follow. So just to make sure that I'm getting this, even though an anvil floats in liquid mercury, if you have a whole floor made of steel or made of whatever you make an anvil out of and you spill mercury onto it, the floor isn't going to float on the mercury because it's just so tiny and insignificant. It's going to pool on the surface. Not really. I I think it's more a case of um, you've got a standard set of minerals that make up most rocks. So something like a a feldspar or a pyroxene. And there's only... um, the sizes of molecules, not molecules, um, atoms that fit into the structure, it can only, it, that structure can only accommodate a certain size range of atoms. And so certain size of, a certain range of elements will fit into there. But if you have something like an, um, a gigantic atom of uranium, it doesn't fit into a pyroxene mol- uh, crystal structure anywhere. And so when you melt rock and it has all these different um, elements in it, and then you start to cool it down. The things that crystallize will use up the, the things that fit. 
And the things that don't fit in any mineral just get concentrated into the liquid, more and more and more concentrated. So you end up with a uranium, gold, platinum rich liquid when everything else is crystallized out as standard mineral minerals like uh, olivine or peroxine or feldspar. Okay, I'm probably So it's a it's it's a process of concentration by um atom size. Okay, I'm probably going to have to listen to that in editing like 15 times to make sure I understand it. But I think the most <laughs> important It would be easier if I could draw diagrams. I think the most important thing to know is if I drink liquid gold, platinum and uranium, will I get superpowers? <laughs> As long as there's no kryptonite in there. Oh, okay. I'll double check. I will. I will ask the guys down at the university to run it through their mass spectrometer. Uh, I say it's lucky. It, it's lucky for us that this works because otherwise you'd have all the useful elements we need for civilization deep down in the mantle, and nothing would be available to us on the surface. That's quite convenient. Looking for a new computer? Go to abkcustoms.com. That's abk-kustoms.com. Speak to an expert to get the computer you need. I actually know one of the builders over there. They are knowledgeable and eager to please. Give them code EVIDENCE for a 10% discount on your next computer. So it's been a little while. To our listeners, it'll seem like just a few seconds. A pair of guitar riffs is all that separates us from our interview with the Rock Doctor. But we did it a couple weeks ago. I don't think it was quite that long ago. Like one week. Uh, Any time frame longer than like an hour feels like a couple of weeks to me. My condolences. What'd you say? It's not important. Oh, okay. So he touched on a bunch of things. Like we asked him some really basic and bordering on banal questions, but we have to because that's a lot of the problems that we're dealing with, right? Yeah, it's difficult to have meaningful discussion if you can't agree on the baseline facts. So this is part one of two of our interview with him. We were we had him for a good two hours. The questions I'm going to include in this one, where, uh, or in this episode, where did it start off? Are fossils real? Do you ever interact with fossils or the rules uh, around fossils and fuel exploration and extracting? Grade school science tells us about tectonic drift. Is it real? <laughs> Sometimes rock layers flip over, are eroded, or exposed, like the Eye of the Sahara or the layers that are visible in the Arizona desert. What can you tell us about these formations? Okay. So a lot of those were really me getting at the worldwide flood problem. I don't know if you've been following, but I've been arguing with a lot of people on the internet about the basic existence of evolution. Minor addendum. For a worldwide flood to be a problem, it first must exist. (laughs) I meant... I meant the problem with people having disevidentia, thinking there was a worldwide flood despite an absence of evidence and a preponderance of evidence showing there wasn't one. Mm-hmm. But if that's not enough for people to believe that this is a problem, the issue with evolution being denied and creationism being accepted is so extreme that in April this year, Arkansas passed a bill to teach creationism in schools. Uh, I actually did not pass a bill. Oh, did it? Fail? Uh, yes, there was a, an update right at the top of the article. The bill failed to advance from the Senate Education Committee on a 3-3 vote. Oh, okay. So there was a 72 to 21 vote this April Yes. by the main body of the Senate. It went to a committee and then failed there. Yes. So a majority of leaders only believe this, but someone in the committee saved it, just yes. barely. correct. Okay, that's still pretty fucking problematic. Oh, very much so. Okay, this one's a little bit older. It's from 1993. Someone in, in a documentary passed off a piece of wood, an old railroad tie specifically, and they fried it in teriyaki sauce and Uh, claimed... This is amazing, and I knew this would come up, so I specifically highlighted the part of the article where he describes exactly what it was. You do it. You do it. It was a, quote, bizarre mix of blueberry and almond wine, iodine, sweet and sour barbecue (laughs) sauce, and teriyaki sauce. I mean, dude's faking pieces of Noah's Ark. 
He sorry, wanted sorry. it to be tasty. On the documentary, he presented this as a piece of Noah's Ark, <laughs> and he artificially aged it on his stovetop with the ingredients Mako just listed. Stovetop and oven. Oh, multifunction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and apparently that was convincing. Uh, one thing I forgot was the percentage of Americans who think evolution is not real. So I'm going to add one more source to our show notes, and we're just going to get something halfway recent. Sorry for this, Mako. I'll get over it. Okay. Oh my goodness. ChristianPost.com says that six in ten Americans believe that evolution is real. And they link to Pew, and this is the source I'll put in there. This Pew's is a good. Tw- hmm? Pew is good. Pew is good. I think I'll put the Christian Post one in there, too. And for reference, the Arizona bill was reported by Ars Technica, and the Noah's Ark teriyaki sauce documentary thing was from uh, the LA Times. Mm-hmm. They were the only source I could find that goes back 30 years. <laughs> so I looked for that one really hard to make sure I got it in the notes. Good for them. The Pew research thing shows that only 27% of white evangelicals believe that evolution exists. And then if you move that over to people who are religiously unaffiliated, it's 76% of people accept evolution. But on the whole, only 60% of Americans when you count everybody up, because there's a lot of evangelicals in this country bringing that number way down. Yeah, it's a little horrifying, Yeah, both how many evangelicals there are and the things they believe. So a full 33% of Americans just do not accept that evolution is real. They think that we, and the phrasing they use is, humans existed in present form since beginning. So yeah, this is a real fucking problem. Ugh. I should link to some of my LinkedIn conversations on this crap, shouldn't I? Have you seen my debates with that guy, Kazito McKenby? No. He has told me to a crowd of other people who are talking about evolution, something some random person posted, and we just started commenting, and he tried to tell us all, all at once that evolution isn't real, trust the word of God. How'd that go for him? I mean, he got shouted down, but now he shows up to every single link that any of us posted, and he shows up and starts trolling us. I wish I could presume he was just an internet troll, but he's so astoundingly consistent, and I have no evidence that he's a bot, I have no evidence that he doesn't believe it, and he's been so impressively consistent at just dodging all attempts at presenting evidence and ignoring all issues. And he's a young earth creationist who takes, like, a hard Levitical view on the Bible where, like, he thinks gay people are bad to the point where he said that, like, you know, those people should be punished by the laws because all the laws of all the countries should be inspired by the Bible. Hmm. Whenever discussions come up, he takes, like, the most extreme view. And also, I also don't think he's from America. I think he's from somewhere in Africa because it's come up before. Yeah. Ugh, gross. You have anything you want to add before we move on to debunking a few of the claims? Uh, not particularly. Let's attempt one go. The small biz that bodes well. <laughs> so we spent a lot of time talking with the rock doctor about uh, the worldwide flood, the lack of a worldwide flood. Yes. Right? Well, the presence of evidence for one and... The lack of presence of evidence for one. Yeah. Yeah, we wouldn't have geological strata. We wouldn't have super old pollen. He went in depth. I'm not sure if it'll make it into the episode, but there was the whole uh, ancient lake he was talking about with vegetation that filled up that was responsible for uh, uh, initiating an ice age. There was a point where the whole planet was thawed and there was a polar lake and it just filled up with these really primitive plants that died and made coal deposits. It's like, we have really good evidence of this. This guy has written papers for this. Ha- Moments like this, I wish there was a camera on my face. I don't have words for the frustration. It's like people just declaring, I know better than this guy that studied this stuff his whole life and went to Oxford to be educated on it. 
seems like he teached a little bit on it. It's easier when you don't know these people exist and easier also when you believe that these people simply lie. Yeah, if you're just willing to deny the evidence, you can get really far in ignoring the evidence. Yeah, yeah. There is nothing that they cannot deny. I heard recently that, I can't even remember what the context was, but I've heard this like off and on, people claiming that things like climate change is a hoax because the scientists are just trying to line their pockets. Yeah, one one of our listeners mentioned that earlier today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was like, okay, how do you imagine the flow of money for research works here? Yeah, what is, how do they get money from... The products all the climate change scientists are selling? I, yeah, I don't know. I don't get it. It is so wrong. We can't research the wrongness. It's like looking for an academic paper demonstrating that two plus two is not three, right? Anybody that wrong, they're not being refuted because it's so wrong, no one thought we needed to refute it. Yeah, not only is the the question wrong, the context in which it's operating is wrong. And it's like, okay, there's nothing constructive that can be built around that question. You just, you have to be like, okay, just come over here. This is how things work. Some of the older scientists in the, in like the first generation of pop science, right? Like right after Carl Sagan started doing TV and radio, right? Cosmos was good. Yeah. One of those scientists, and I forget who, they came up with the, with the idea of not even wrong. And this applies great to like the time cube guy. Ah, great. I'm going to need to link to time cube, aren't I? But the time cube guy is just obviously mentally ill. He is just definitely wrong, definitely deranged, definitely not attached to reality. What is the one sentence description of the time cube guy? That the world is a cube with four corners and can be rotated to adjust time 12 hours for every quarter rotation. And the time is controlled by them and is used against you. And it's an illusion, but not an illusion because the time cube is real and time is not. Something like that. That's his core belief. That's not even coherent. Yep. He put this website up and people thought it was a real joke. He made it onto a couple like talk shows back when the internet was beginning to pick up steam, like Mm -hmm. in that pre-smartphone post-90s era. And they brought him on thinking he was going to be this great comedian. And no, he was... He was deeply unwell and not attached to reality to the point where, like, even talk show hosts felt bad about making fun of him. I mean, they did. They're talk show hosts. Yeah. That guy is somebody that those old school scientists would say he's not even wrong because he's not coherent enough to be making a claim. Yeah. And often when I'm arguing with people on the Internet, that's where they're at. Like this Kazito guy that I mentioned earlier. He will often say things that just are incoherent, right? He'll be like... Uh, God takes the sin from the sinner and the sin is cleansed of the pain and and that's how you're free. And I'm like, we weren't talking about freedom, but okay, cool story, bro. Thank you. At least when they're making claims, if someone's going to say Jesus died for your sins, okay, that's at least a noun and a verb. We can work yeah. with that. That is that is an actual coherent claim, one that can be like addressed and is still, you know, pretty readily, I don't want to say disproven, but like rendered nonsense, but it's still like a coherent, like actual thought being conveyed. Yeah, that's where we're at with these people claiming that climate scientists are trying to line their pockets. It's like, yeah, it's an actual claim, but it's such nonsense. I don't know. I guess I've come up with four categories of nonsense. The not even wrong, the patent nonsense, what we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. People who are just wrong, but at least in theory their ideas could like fit. Like ideas that were once actually testable, reasonable questions, but we have tested and we've disproven. Yeah, sure. Like people claiming creationism over evolution, right? At least 
Like, I'm not saying that God is a sensible worldview, but at least I get it. There's a whole idea there. There's a theory. We could test it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I can imagine a world that God created instead of people and animals evolved. Right? That, is, that is coherent, and it makes predictions about the world, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we wouldn't expect all the DNA and everything to work the exact same in all the creatures, except in very corner cases where the, the genetic dictionary, the, the list of codons is slightly different in creatures very evolutionarily removed from us. We have in our DNA a list of 60-something codons that are the tiniest units DNA works in little words of DNA, and we'd expect that all these would be mostly the same if we all came from the same parents, the same lineage. And that holds true until you go all the way up to some very common ancestor, then come back down uh, a branch of invertebrates, and there's one, like, weird sponge thing that has two codons that humans don't. They're totally different in that regard, and all their descendants have that different thing. It's like, that's really strong evidence of evolution, but we wouldn't expect to see that if there were a god. It's just, why would god build an illusion of history like that. He doesn't talk about it in the Bible or no religious text talks about, you know, I'm going to put the appearance of age in the microscopic structure of your body. Maybe God just likes to organize things just like we do. But if he wanted to organize things just like we do, why would we have things like the recumbent laryngeal nerve? We have a link to SciShow in the uh, show notes. Mm -hmm. If God wanted things organized and clean, why wouldn't he copy-paste everything to have the exact same DNA structure, the same codons? Or why wouldn't he just create things fresh each time? He's God. He can make anything at any arbitrary level of complexity he wanted. He wouldn't need to create the illusion of us having a lineage. And he never touches on these lineages in any of the holy books. Right? I mean, I've only read the Quran, the Book of Mormon, a couple Scientology books, and the Bible, two different versions. So I haven't read all the holy books, but I would expect one of the holy books to mention DNA. Okay, the Scientologists do mention DNA, but that's really different, and they didn't predict this. Okay. And if we're going to go there, we have to start giving Xenu credit. We can do a whole episode later on Scientology. It's fine. Yeah, for our sanity, it's probably best we just smile and nod. Yeah. <sighs> I got way off track. What were we talking about? Uh, we started that whole thread talking about Worldwide Flood. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, the Rock Doctor covered that. We're good. Oh, my God. Okay, well. Are we not? I mean, like most topics, we probably could do a whole episode on Worldwide Flood debunking. But for the purposes of this specific episode, we're trying to go for just a high-level overview of... A few of the myths. A few of the myths from creationism, yeah. Okay. And I think that's good enough for now. I think we can move on to the next overall idea. Okay, well, surely the creationists are right about something. They constantly tell us that errors keep accruing in our DNA and that we're going to have horrible genetic catastrophe later on, right? Well, the term for this that they like to use, that they have branded, as some people say, is genetic entropy. And yes, there are mistakes in the cellular division process that occur. We do have mechanisms that correct these errors, but sometimes on occasion, errors persist. And creationists believe that this is a mechanism that prevents any creature from adapting too far from its core self. Oh, you didn't bring this part up, but lots of creationists I've talked with and debated with talk about micro versus macro evolution. Hmm. And some have even cited things like this 
as a dividing line. And there's absolutely no scientific evidence for that. So that's another no. thing I don't know how to intelligently go about refuting, other than to say that no biologist subscribes to that. Yeah. Uh, I need to caveat that. I'm sure we can go find somebody with a biology degree who subscribes to some Answers in Genesis version of nonsense. The preponderance of scientists do not agree with that nonsense. Yeah. Individuals can be flawed, but scientific consensus is important to mitigate the flaws of any individual scientist. And that is true for all fields of science. For any given field of science, you probably can find one person that's going to agree with the wrong thing. And generally, that's not a bad thing. We do want to have rigor for our claims, but then sometimes it gets to the point where it's just downright irresponsible. There's a podcast called The Body of Evidence, and they have a really good creed, and I'm trying to remember what it is, because they say things like, scientific studies are like movies. Some of them are just bad. <laughs> a study can be wrong, but a whole field of science generally can't be. And they have a few little quippy sayings like this into one thing, and their podcast is just really good. They focus primarily on medical misinformation, so we don't cite them every episode, mm -hmm. but they just have a really good handle on the notion of the body of evidence because i can find you one piece of evidence that noah's ark exists but then we later learn it was boiled in blueberry sauce and teriyaki <laughs> and iodine and sweet and sour barbecue sauce you said it was tasty iodine is bitter as hell i'm he didn't specify the quantities of each oh okay so a tasty amount of iodine i'd like to think so okay uh do we have any sources or anything we want to discuss on that we can provide a little bit more context on genetic entropy the general idea is that at some point, if an organism adapts or mutates or evolves, take your pick of terminology, to a certain degree, it will encounter problems in cellular division. These problems will keep on adding up and eventually it will cause enough negative mutations in the organism that it's no longer able to reproduce and then the organism dies. And on the face of it, this is kind of obviously wrong for a few reasons. The, the single biggest reason is just the general notion of a distinction between a mutation in an individual and a mutation that actually has the opportunity to spread through an entire population. Yeah, it sounds really difficult to spread a mutation through an entire population that prevents spreading the genes. Yeah, if your mutation keeps you from reproducing, you literally cannot spread it to the rest of the population. So let me make sure I understand this. Imagine I were born with a genetic mutation such that my dick fell off. Uh-huh. Okay? Yeah. And then I go to try to spread my genes into the human gene pool. I'd have a hard time because my dick fell off. If we were to presume in the absence of modern medical science that this were to happen, then yes, you would be unable to reproduce. You would not be able to create any offspring. And the genes that cause your dick to fall off would not be passed on to anything else in the species. And so it, it would just be self-correcting defect. I am now going to mark off on my bingo card. Get Mako to say Dick fell off. Good job. Dick fell off. <laughs> Sorry. <I'm good. laughs> but in the presence of modern medical science, we can do all sorts of amazing things, including presumably, maybe, I mean, if assuming it was only your dick that fell off and not anything that produces your semen, then semen could be extracted and then artificially inseminated. Yay, modern medical science. Okay. We're getting off in the weeds here. If something were to start steering in the direction of genetic entropy, it would immediately stop being a problem because whatever mutation that was that caused it would simply go away. Yeah. Yeah. If my dick fell off, the genes for dicks falling off would just go away. Yeah. That sounds super simple. But from what I've read, like in this Reddit discussion, mm -hmm. the principle that even some of these authors are putting forward, like Sanford, 
They're saying that the whole population gets it and then the whole population dies, which just can't happen. There's no real mechanism for why or how that would happen. Uh, And what was the specific term, the error catastrophe? Sorry, you were saying? I can explain what some people are thinking when they try to work that through logically to get to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. Some people are thinking that the concept of species is something in the DNA. So they think that collectively somehow all members of a species have related DNA somehow and there's some mechanism keeping that going when really what we have is many individuals all have DNA that happen to be similar. So if there were some thing that every time you got near another human we exchanged DNA right? if that happened there would be a concept of species spread between us but there isn't anything like that. Minor thought getting near another human than spreading DNA is that not... That put me on several lists. Okay. Yeah, so most people don't do that. And if you don't want to be on a list, you shouldn't do it either. Mm -hmm. So error catastrophe is the specific term that they're using to try to be like, yeah, no, when they say genetic entropy, they actually mean error catastrophe. And there has been an accusation that error catastrophe has been observed, specifically in H1N1, and that is obviously and demonstrably false. We've never even observed it. Yeah, it's not been observed anywhere. Error catastrophe has just not happened near as we can tell ever. Yeah, and that was actually like a legitimate scientific theory people put forward once upon a time, but our inability to duplicate it in experiments caused scientists to drop it. Like, it happens. One thing that can hypothetically explain how errors get fixed, in our cells, there was a hypothesized mechanism for fixing DNA called Muller's Ratchet. And there's just a really great XKCD that analogizes this. Mm -hmm. So I encourage people to just go check out XKCD 2464. There'll be a link in the show notes, but you can just go to the website and punch the number in. Like all XKCDs, it's pretty funny and way too on point with the science. Yep. And then I have a another source uh, from Nature, <laughs> Nature the publication, mind you. Yeah, we just found it in the woods. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> just like right there in the backyard. It's fine. <laughs> uh, but no. So th- they talk about like the mechanisms for DNA replication and uh, error rates and like how these mechanisms work, how they produce errors and the attempts to repair or correct the errors that do occur. And they go on to explain that often when an error even remains after the repair mechanism is done, that usually just becomes a mutation. Like it doesn't disprove evolution. It actually is one of the many mechanisms for evolution. Yeah. And if the mutation is beneficial, the organism has a better chance of reproducing more often. It doesn't always happen. Plenty of beneficial mutations are certainly lost through happenstance. Mm -hmm. If the mutation is through DNA that isn't often or is in DNA that isn't often used or doesn't significantly affect the organism, it spreads somewhat randomly, this new mutation. And if the mutation is, I believe the term scientists use is deleterious. Fancy. If the mutation causes the organism's dick to fall off, Oh my god. Well, that's pretty deleterious. <sighs> Moving on. If the mutation prevents the organism from reproducing in in a significant way, yeah. then the organism doesn't. It dies off. Or it reproduces at a lower rate, and eventually it dies off. It is outcompeted by the ones that don't have this deleterious mutation. But either way, it is like any other mutation. Yeah, just part of evolution. Yeah. And evolution doesn't care if something is the best. It just cares if it's sufficient. Pretty much. Moving on to another myth that people commonly put forward to say that evolution is always false. (laughs) People love to claim that the eye couldn't have evolved. That it is a sign of intelligent design. Yeah. It is too intricate and complex to possibly have just been stumbled upon by happenstance. So this is a, uh, a specific kind of logical fallacy, and when you get to the 
bad attempts at scholarly papers from creationists. The term they use is irreducible complexity. They say that because you couldn't reduce this structure, couldn't have evolved. Which is patent bullshit. And the two things that keep getting brought up is the eyes of creatures, because they're like, it's way too complex, couldn't have happened. Ignoring how complex everything else in the body is. Mm -hmm. An individual red blood cell is phenomenally complex. But the other example they often bring up is flagella, little hairs on single-celled organisms. I suppose they could exist on multicellular organisms, but we don't see them there. But I have hair. It's a single cell. Yeah, I can see it. Wow. Yeah, so for single-celled organisms and Mako's head, a flagella is a collection of a small number of proteins that the that the cells can use to waggle about. Was that too much, Mako? I'm looking for something to throw at you. Okay, I can handle that. Uh, more of the reasons why we're podcasters and not YouTubers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sorry. These hairs let single-celled organisms move and flail about, and they're constructed of a very small number of proteins. But like our eyes, even if these things couldn't have evolved in a piecewise assembly fashion, and they could have, you still could get to, or, uh, to structures in organisms that are irreducibly complex, because it could have evolved more than what's there, and then some of that could have been wasteful, could have cost the organism energy, it could have uh, provided extra structure that wasn't needed anymore for some reason, and then those things could have evolved away. And we see this. Like, there's no good way for a whale to have evolved that little bone that's clearly a leg bone floating around inside of its hindquarters. Mm -hmm. right? How that evolved was the other whale bones shrunk and went away over time because they weren't needed. I believe the term for that is vestigial. Yeah. So you can get vestigial things that evolve uh, or in these flagella, you could get a, an assembly of proteins that one at a time is useful. And then eventually when you get to a big full hair that lets the cell swim around, uh, it could evolve to drop off some of the proteins that aren't needed anymore. I should go swimming. Be careful, man. We have those brain eating amoebas around here. Oh, damn. They didn't evolve to eat hair. Hmm. Nagliri Fowlori. Just Google around until you see the clown face looking amoeba. They Photoshop the colors, but it's an amoeba that'll eat human brain cells. Don't swim in the Missouri River. It's full of this amoeba and hexavalent chromium, both of which are delicious, but both of which will kill you. Does that explain why both Nebraska and Iowa are red states? The brain cells being eaten? Ooh, I don't have any evidence for it, but that sounds compelling. I have a hypothesis. All right, we'll test this. We'll, we'll make an episode about this later. Okay. Okay. But the evolution of the eye. Yes. Yeah, I went off on a little rant there. The eye can be evolved stepwise, and we have several sources for it, right? Uh, I linked to, to Wikipedia, The Evolution of the Eye. It's just a great resource. They have tons of sources, going mm -hmm. back to, to Darwin. And SciShow, I linked to, to a YouTube video they have, about seven minutes in, and there's a timestamp in the link. They talk about vertebrate eye evolution. And this is great because our retinas are backwards and there's other flaws with them, so not intelligently designed. Yeah. But the evolution of eyes came in a couple steps. Uh, euglena, they're these tiny single-celled organisms, interestingly enough, have an eye spot and flagella. And this eye spot is just a little blob of pigment that can detect light. So the euglena can detect if it's in sunlight or not because they have chloroplasts. They can photosynthesize. So if they're not in sunlight, they move to get to sunlight. Some euglena can orient themselves so they can tell roughly what direction sunlight's in, but not all of them. But that's useful, being able to detect the presence or absence of light. That is enough to keep a thing from evolving or from reproducing if it can't do that. If you photosynthesize and try to do it in the dark, you're going to have a bad time. Very bad time. Would you rather that or the, the dick falling off? Tough call. Yeah. More advanced, advanced. And that's a total catch on wordplay there. Evolution doesn't care about what we as humans think is more advanced or not. No. Right? But things that humans think of as more advanced tend to have more cells, more structure, more, organi more organization that we can recognize. 
That's not what nature cares about. It just cares about if it can reproduce. So like there's some amoebas out there that do amazing things with proteins and DNA that's 100 times larger than human DNA. So they might be more advanced. Well, Meh. there is something to be said about like things that flow back to being able to reproduce more effectively. Like sharks are incredibly effective hunters because it enables them to secure food better, which enables them to survive more, which enables them to reproduce more. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it does come all back to reproduction, but it feels just a little bit reductionist to only acknowledge reproduction. Yeah. And I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to avoid declaring one organism more advanced because it has what we would conceive of as a better eye. Yeah. But I was going to point out snails and worms, they have a better eye than a euglena. A euglena, again, being single-celled. It's got a little blob of pigment. But snails and worms and a lot of other creatures that we would think of as simple, they have little spots that can not only give them the presence or absence of light, but some can get color and most can get direction. Also, hagfish have this. They don't have eyes. They just have, like, discolored spots on the top of their head. And if they point that at light, they know there's light there. So they just use that to run away from light. So they get to the dark. That's all they need. It's pretty useful. Simple needs. Simple, I was about to say design. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Evolution does feel like it designs stuff, and that's why it's really easy to fall in this trap that four in ten Americans have fallen into this trap. Yeah. <sighs> um, a step up from that, if you're not familiar with it, you might want to research pinhole cameras, because they're actually really cool. You can make a pinhole camera with just a cardboard box and a pin, but it's a really simple way to get an image from a very bright light. Basic idea is if you have a hollow thing with a hole on one end, light coming in will produce an image on the other side, as long as your hole's small. Mm -hmm. But there's a trade-off. You get a better image the smaller your hole, and you get more light the bigger the hole, but you lose focus the bigger the hole. But organisms with this, with pinhole eyes, I have some simple ones listed. I, oh, I have just the Nautilus listed, but there's, there's several in nature. Yeah. But having a pinhole eye lets these organisms better protect their light-sensitive cells. They can actually make out images in the right color, so you can see a predator, for example. And you can't see a predator with eye spots or, or just color-sensitive pigments, right? Mm -hmm. Being able to see a predator some of the time or see your food some of the time is way better than seeing it none of the time. So that's another partially evolved eye that's better than what we just listed. Uh, the next step up is what we have. We have actual retinas and lenses. And having lenses in our eyes means that our, I forget what the part is, but the colored part of your eye can change size and let in more or less light. And then the lens in our eye can focus it. So that decouples us from needing a lot of light to get a good image. I believe the colored part is the iris. That sounds plausible. Oh my. We'll okay. put a source in there. Sure. I'm trying to make this approachable for people and not get too technical. I'm only going to throw out terms like uh, all the terms I already threw out. Right. It happened five minutes ago. I can't remember. I know, Squeaky. I know. No, I forgot. And you'll forget about this too. Yeah, so lenses and retinas. Mm -hmm. uh, because of them, we can see even when it's dark. It takes our eyes a, a moment to adjust, right? Of course. And, and we still need some light. But then we can look at other eyes that are even better than ours. Because our eyes... And if you're going to say God designed us and built us in his image, that's... Yeah, like, why does any other species do things better than us if we are the golden child? Yeah, but like cephalopods, they have their retinas in the right way, right? Our retinas are wired backwards. Our, our optic nerve comes in the back of our eye and then reaches out over in front of all of our rods and cones, the, the sensitive cells in our eyes that actually pick up the light, and they pass in front of those, making our eyes a little bit blurrier, and then they touch each cell to pick up the data. That's it's a terrible design. And you know who doesn't have that? Invertebrates. No invertebrate has that nonsense. That's a purely vertebrate and mostly a mammal problem. Woo. 
Uh, birds don't have it. Birds have their retinas on the right way around. So eagles don't have this problem, right? And eagles just have much better image sharpening. I believe cats do have this problem, but cats also have an extra layer of reflective cells so they can capture more light so they can see way better in the dark. So any of these creationists saying that we have a complete eye, a divinely inspired eye, really got to ask them why a house why a house cat has better eyes. Yep. And now some creationist is going to yell at us, but house cats can't see 10 to 15 inches in front of their face. Fine, whatever. You'd think God could, you know, make a, a lens that focuses. Uh, the common animal uh, example for better eyes that I always heard in my childhood was owls. Oh, yeah. Well, owl eyes are ridiculous. They're like long tubes. Most owls can't spin their eyes. They have to turn their whole head. Yeah. But the owls do have really good eyes compared to us. They can see much further. They have much better visual acuity. Uh, you let me blather on a long time there about the evolution of the eye. <laughs> yes. Uh, I kind of went through the historical case for it. Is there any other views or angles we should take on this? On the eye specifically, I don't think so. I mean, there's there's a whole lot of reading that can be done about the evolution of the eye, the different kinds of eye, and the complexities. On reading, mm-hmm. I put three links in our show notes to Richard Dawkins' books. Mm-hmm. Now, he's kind of an asshole and a bigot. Yeah. Just recently on Twitter, he keeps being a fucking dipshit. But on the topic of evolution and the contents of his books, they're really good. So I've linked to three that I've read. And if you click on those, you'll help the show. So please do. And his books are good. and He deserves credit and money for his books. But let's not give him any attention on Twitter or anything else. Yeah, sadly. Yeah. Oh, you, you were saying reading and sources. Uh, yeah, I'm. there's more that can be covered. But uh, I think for our purposes, we've covered quite a bit there. Uh, one, one thing that I, I kept on thinking when I was doing this research is just remembering it's like, I, I don't really talk to creationists all that much. I did when I was younger, not so much lately. I envy you so much. <laughs> yes, I know. But again, like I said, I, when I was younger, I did. And it was it was pretty easy to point out changes in organisms and be like, okay, well, organisms aren't static. You can plainly see this. And they're like, okay, you're right. It's not static, but that's adaptation and not evolution. And I just, I kept on thinking of that and it was just this this nagging thing that bothers me because to try to say that adaptation exists but evolution does not if you do believe in evolution you know that they are the same thing the only difference is time scales but to try to say that they're they're not the same thing like if you have one organism that adapts in some way to something then i mean that is the the adapted organism is the new baseline. Presumably it can adapt again and again and again and again. And do that over a long enough period of time, it will meaningfully change as an organism. But to try to say that it cannot meaningfully change means that there's some ep- upper limit to the amount that it can adapt. And there's like, for lack of a better term, there's some kind of adaptation wall or an adaptation tether that exists. And genetic entropy is the first thing that I can think of that I've heard anywhere that could even remotely be described as a mechanism for this. And genetic entropy is obvious bullshit. So like, what even is this mechanism? Like, what are are people even like, I know the answer. This is a rhetorical question, Squeaky. (laughs) What are these people thinking when they admit that adaptation exists, but evolution does not? I know it's a rhetorical question, but these people are just disevidential sufferers. Yeah. These people aren't thinking it through all the way. And if they didn't have some preconceived reason to believe this, if these people weren't externally motivated to believe this, if they didn't need to believe it to satisfy their emotions, they probably wouldn't. But if you were raised from a young age, if you were indoctrinated 
that God is good and right, that you have to accept God's teachings to get in heaven, that God is the end-all, be-all, everything, that Jesus died for your sins. There's a lot of emotional baggage. And then when someone hooks a scientific hypothesis, even one that's totally wrong, onto your deeply-seated emotional needs, yeah, it's hard. And for anyone who's having a conversation out there with someone who's denying evidence, who's denying evolution, you have to come at it from the perspective of they have some reason for it. And religion is the most common one in this country, but there's other reasons. And they're often just deep-seated and emotional. And unfortunately, so many of these anti-evolution people let that creep into the rest of their thinking. Because if you don't accept evolution, all of a sudden vaccines don't seem nearly so useful. And that's really problematic during a pandemic. I don't I think... For a lot of people that are ignorant, the, the concepts between evolution and vaccines are sufficiently separated that they don't necessarily need to be a tide in motivation. I'm sure it's distinct for many people. I'm pretty sure it's attached for many people as well. I don't have good numbers on this. Well, they're attached in that Dems say these things are good, but <laughs> beyond that... Stupid liberal cuck. I didn't evolve to be a Republican. <laughs> Well, maybe you didn't evolve. No, you devolved to be a... Sorry. <laughs> uh. I'm also cutting out lots of shade that I'd be throwing here. I promise. It's a little unnerving how seamless it was. So how about instead of us shooting shots at creationists, why don't we actually present some positive evidence for evolution? I mean, not that we didn't already. Well, so proving evolution is a little bit tricky because, again, you have the constant claim of adaptation versus evolution. And evolution is something that takes place over really, really large timescales. So start to finish demonstrating evolution is a little bit tricky and it gets easier when you're talking about organisms with uh, short lifespans like viruses it's pretty easy but then people are going to argue like oh that's a is that even arguably a life form and i have had face-to-face -face arguments with people about whether or not evolution in e coli could be abstracted and applied to multicellular life yeah people tried to tell me that oh it's still a coli therefore it didn't evolve and i'm like it learned how to eat a new thing, right? Like it's eating metal now, right? It can eat it can eat your jewelry. It couldn't before. It ate sugar yesterday. It eats nickel plated whatever today. How is that not a different organism to you? If we could one day, eventually, maybe, probably not, but maybe invent like flawless time travel, just like in Star Trek and all those time travel future episodes. Yeah, have Superman fly around the earth holding a creationist. And then <laughs> Yes. And then show a time lapse of the evolution of dinosaurs, for example. That would be amazing. Then we could positively firsthand prove that, yes, evolution's a thing, but we don't have that luxury, unfortunately. I really want to know why the stegosaurus had its plates. And a time lapse of stegosaurus evolution might give us something. That'd be really cool. I certainly hope it would give us something. Yeah, we get we get thousands of pictures of stegosaurus and, and all, the, all the scientists throw it out. They're like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. Like, imagine we do that and we discover that stegosaurs, like, create webs or something ridiculous we just have no clue it didn't fossilize there is a relevant xkcd for that oh goodness yeah there is because <laughs> it's somebody from the future talking about how cool spiders are like and then, oh my god it has a web yeah and it just didn't know because the web didn't fossilize yeah i'll put it in the show notes okay uh so it is a difficult thing like we can create like mathematical models but then people argue well it's not something that can like can you demonstrate it in biology i have literally written that piece of software yeah 
yeah, I did it to learn about evolutionary algorithms, of all things. And I did this back in college, like 20 years ago. Wasn't fresh then. So, when, and then, like, you point to fossil records and they fall back on, you know, Satan put them in the ground. So it's, there's this constant, like, pushing out of things, uh, moving the goalposts for what is sufficient evidence. But for most reasonable people, you know, just a combination of, like, understanding the logic, understanding the, the mechanisms, understanding enough about cellular division to get the mechanisms, and looking at the fossil record is a pretty complete picture for evolution. But that's... I don't know. I think something that is interesting to think about that might uh, appeal to more people is the the notion that evolution is still ongoing in a lot of organisms, in particular, including humans. I think that's a great place to start. If we only had some clean, natural experiment where there were some group of people that developed some trait that were useful and demonstrate evolution continued. Uh, it can't be anything like that. There's actually quite a few different things like that, uh, as you well know. <laughs> And I have a few different sources that talk about this. Uh, I started with the Wikipedia article titled Recent Human Evolution, which is pretty fantastic. And a little I, on the nose. Yeah, I, I focused on just the more like especially recent because when they say recent, they're talking about like recent on civilization timescales. They're talking about going back like a thousand years. But I was focusing more specifically on things that are in the last 200 years, which are kind of difficult because more obvious evolution tends to begin after about a hundred generations, roughly. I mean, it depends on the change and depends on the pressures and it can happen much more quickly. And there were a few examples of uh, us seeing changes in human biology in as few as three generations. Wow. Yeah. And uh, that one specifically was having uh, a lower baseline blood pressure in Westerners because of our high salt diets. Salt raises blood pressure. So we gained genetic changes in the past three generations to accommodate that? Yes. Huh. And I explain why when I play games with people, they're really salty about losing. (laughs) Uh, But yeah. So... There's a number of different examples uh, like this. So I wrote down a bunch of, ex- of these examples that I found particularly interesting. And like the, the Wikipedia article has a lot more examples than what I'm going to cover. But I picked the things that seem obvious and relatable and can s- sufficiently be condensed. So humans used to have larger jaws. Uh, but modern diets and our ability to like use tools to reduce the size of food that we intake, it, we don't really need really large jaws. So our jaws have been shrinking. And this is the reason why wisdom teeth need to be pulled in a lot of people. We just we don't have the jaw space to accommodate all the teeth that we once had the space for. So it costs a lot of energy to have large jaws and our jaw, jaws slowly got smaller to cost us less energy. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. You just spend that extra energy on brains <laughs> and then don't use it and have dysepidentia. Damn. Be modern Americans. Menopause is occurring later in women. So the reproductive window for women is increasing. So I still have a chance? Barely. I'll go find my dick because it fell off. Good luck. Thank you. Uh, so head sizes have been increasing ever since cesarean sections started becoming more common. Because there was this tug of war, like childbirth was a very dangerous thing for both child and mother for the longest time, like until modern medicine really came about. And then we were really able to push down infant mortality. If if somebody were pregnant with a baby with a head that was too large, they wouldn't be able to give birth and probably both would die. And if a child is born with too small of a head, they're going to take more time to develop or might be cognitively less able than someone with more brains. 
But now that cesarean sections are becoming more commonplace and becoming safer as we understand how to do these things and more technologies and procedures are becoming available, the pressure to keep head sizes down because of the the mother and child dying like you described, uh, that pressure is going away. So those were some interesting ones. And then I I pulled from some of the, the specific sources that were covered on the article. And there was another case, and I believe this is what you were referencing when we started this section, where malaria resistance developed faster than expected in an island population. Uh, There were some... I did not write down where exactly this happened. You said it was off the coast of Africa, but that really doesn't narrow it down. No, it really, really doesn't. Let's uh, let's pull this up real quick. Could be in any of the four hemispheres. So it's on an island that's in an archipelago, fancy, uh, some 385 miles offshore from Senegal, Cabo Verde. Oh, so that's West Africa. Uh, It was colonized by Portuguese sailors. They brought African slaves with them. And the African slaves had a resistance to malaria. The European settlers did not. And the region is you know known for having malaria and africa yeah 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 and anything remotely coastal has malaria like florida had it until we until we fixed it <laughs> to think that florida was worse at one point that's unthinkable so there was some intermingling between the european settlers and their slaves of course but the selective pressure was so large because like just because you produce offspring doesn't necessarily mean that the trait is going to be passed on there are imperfections in this process and so you would expect this kind of trait to become commonplace uh, after a certain number of generations. They didn't provide a specific number for the amount of generations that they expected it to occur, but they did say that the resistance developed pretty much completely throughout the entire population after 20 generations, and they expected it to be much larger. And they even used the words, this is one of the most rapid cases of change to the human genome measured. That's kind of amazing. That also shows how dangerous malaria is. Yes, malaria is very pressuring for changes. And I wish that this didn't so directly relate to our current issues, but there are some people I've talked to who are saying we will just evolve our way out of COVID, let all the people die. And it's like, that they don't realize they're talking about generations of suffering. Yeah. Ma- malaria has a much higher lethality rate than COVID, and that's not to downplay COVID. Uh, last number I saw showed that 1.8% of people who get it die, which is insurmountable amounts of death. It's it's incredible. Mm-hmm. But malaria is like some double-digit percentage. So yeah, that'll kill you. If you have a 1 in 5 chance of dying, let's say it's 20%, right? Then the first generation, 20% of people who will die to it die. So the next round of people are going to be way more resistant. And then I'm sure that the next round, it's going to be more like, you know, 15, 18%. And then each generation, it gets less and less until eventually you have a population of people where 1% of people die from it. And you have a measurable scientific thing we can read about on Wikipedia now. Yep. And then we have another source that goes on and describes a few more uh, examples. I already touched on the Western diet and salt thing. The, this next source is where they talked about that. But the two other examples that I pulled from this article, uh, people who live on the Tibetan plateau are able to just breathe better in low oxygen environments. Because of the high altitude. They have to. And yep. they just are better at it. There is also a, I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, uh, Baju? 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 B-A-J-A-U for people yep. who are listening. And if you have a correction for how that's pronounced, please contact us at contact at or reach out to us on r slash disevidentia on Reddit. Yeah, I, I'm i an uncultured American. I'm going to butcher a lot of these things. I apologize. So uh, that is a community in Indonesia, and they have larger than typical spleens because they do a lot of uh, uh, holding breath diving. And the spleen 
when it compresses, it releases red blood cells and those carry oxygen. So the larger your spleen is, the longer you can hold your breath. And they have that compared to a lot of the rest of the population around the world. And your last note in this section, you point out that Westerners have lower baseline cholesterol levels and blood pressures due to a high salt Western diet. I have addressed that twice now, yes. Yeah, but reading it, reading it again, makes me realize that McDonald's is applying a selective pressure on evolutionary timelines. Yes, yes it is. So am I right to infer that McDonald's is as much of an evolutionary pressure as malaria? Probably not. It is an evolutionary pressure, and it's measurable, but I don't think it's quite the same amount of pressure. That is a brilliant tagline for McDonald's. Not as unhealthy as malaria. And it's accurate, near as we can tell. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, we're going to get sued by McDonald's. <laughs> what? We're just stating facts. <sighs> it's not slander. All right, so when the McDonald's lawyer reaches out to us with a cease and desist letter, I'll be sure to say, hey, we said you're not as bad as malaria. What, you want to refute that? You sure you want to go that direction, McDonald's? That'll play well. That'll play great in front of a judge. <laughs> no way that'll go bad for us. Uh, well, that's a really thorough discussion on modern human evolution. Yeah. So it, it provides, I don't want to say hard explanations, but it provides a really strong scientific framework to think about problems that we have, like wisdom teeth, birth, uh, and how like our brain size relates to how we reproduce as a species. Disease is an ever-present selective force on us because there's no other macroscopic organism that's a threat, right? Correct. We were cave people when we still when we eradicated the saber-toothed tiger. There just aren't any threats in terms of like lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, we shot them with a gun. We win. Yeah. And then we see these environments that we're pushing to the extreme because we've spread everywhere. So people go in every environment. We've got people living on top of mountains and near the ocean and eating unhealthy food and adapting to all of it. Yep. Wait, so I'm highly evolved? You're evolved. Let's just leave it at that. I'll take it. Yeah, you would. Okay. Any other points on human evolution? I'm sure there are plenty, but again, trying to keep things high level. So. Okay. Then I'm going to drop one more source in there. Check out talkorigins.org. They have an index of creationist claims that is hundreds of items long, and they sort them and arrange them and provide several sources for refuting each. Uh, we didn't actually use that this episode, but I have used it in previous episodes, and it was a big deal for me when I was first coming around to accept that evolution was a plausible way to explain the vast and amazing diversity of life. So it's really good reading if you have somebody in your life who's really bugging you. I wouldn't suggest dumping it on them, but try to read and learn for yourself, come to your own conclusions based on actual research, dig into scientific papers, and hopefully between our show notes and the Talk Origins Index of creationist claims, you can be educated enough to have a hard conversation with people around you. Mm-hmm. Never claim to be good at this. Okay. In fact, I think I've made it clear that part of why I went into podcasting was I have a face for it. You've made that abundantly clear in multiple at multiple times in multiple places. I have a YouTube deficiency. My face. Okay. I have good ideas. The stuff behind the face is good, like my skull. It is a very robust skull. I feel like you've hit me several times and I don't recall... <laughs> Not to your knowledge. I, that's how that works. Thanks again to our sponsor, ABK Customs. Go to ABK Customs, that is abk-kustomz.com, and give them discount code EVIDENCE to get a 10% discount on having an expert build your next custom computer. Thanks to all of our Patreon supporters at the Evidence Investigator level or higher, Jared, Duct Tape, Keldar, and Lazori78. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to like, subscribe, leave a review, or tell a friend. Copyright 2021, Blacktop Studios, Inc.
Intro music was slow by Pitex, used with permission. Anyway. <sighs> Sorry, just, it's good to take You're a breather on this. Out all these silent bits. Oh yeah, no, taking out the silences and stuff will be easy. But hearing smart people's opinions on complex things, we'll leave a bunch of that in there because I don't disagree and we'll fact check everything before we publish. So. It's a real shame we can't sit in an English pub with a pint each and we just record it in a noisy uh, city bar. It's much more fun. When the pandemic's good and over, maybe. Yeah, when you're a multimillionaire from your podcast and you can fly anywhere you need to. That's right. I'm an American. I'm not poor. I'm a temporarily disenfranchised millionaire. Or so we're told. I'm an actual millionaire if you believe what the house prices are worth. (laughs) Uh, It's crazy. I live in a very small, humble house by American standards, but it has a crazy price tag attached to it. It would be nice if I ever get to turn it into cash, but then I won't have anywhere to live. Can't you buy a little farm plot out in the middle of nowhere? No, no, I bought a, a what do they call it in America? A row house. Oh, so it's like a, call them? it's like one of many. Town it's like house. a duplex or something. Yeah, I've got neighbors that I share a wall with on both sides. I see. So it's hard and to sell. I have sell. an enormous garden that's 100 foot long and uh, 30 foot wide, which is huge by London standards. I think that's huge by most standards. Well, that's like upper middle class American suburb sized. It's like a little bigger than you ours. Mean you don't, you don't. Surely you put on your cowboy hat and you saddle up and you ride all day to the edge of your land? That's a state south. That's Oklahoma and Texas. This is Nebraska. Okay. We put on our boots and wade through the corn. Yes, that's true. I don't know. I'm trying to be funny. Mako's giving <laughs> yeah. me this look. I'm tr- what was it? What was that film? Interstellar. Was that filmed in, in Nebraska? I think Iowa. Yeah, Iowa. So, sure. Iowa. so 30 feet east. It was, it was a great image of these endless seas of corn. Yeah. But that had some hills. Yeah, there were some hills. Yeah, we have areas that do look like that. Yeah. Yeah, the hills were CG. People don't believe it's this flat. <laughs> uh, all right, all right. We have you presumably... I need to see Nebraska one day. I'm sorry? I need to see Nebraska one day. <laughs> you really don't. There, there are like... Maybe, maybe from an aeroplane. <laughs> oh. That seems fair. They already call us flyover states. Yes, I heard. Uh, no, we <laughs> do. Have, we do have a couple good things to see here. Uh, if you like zoos, the Henry Dorley Zoo is uh, the second largest and second best funded zoo in the country. It is a phenomenal zoo, and uh, that sounds good. Yeah, we have this giant desert dome. And we have trees, but we put them inside because it's Nebraska. Can't have them outside. <laughs> yeah, I saw the, um, what was it? The, the Nebraska National Forest. And it was like, that's not a forest. Oh, that's, you're talking some um, some valley. There were some little valleys that had some trees at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, you're talking about Fontanelle Forest. It's, we, we have to drive past it to get to Iowa. It's, what is it? It's 1,400 acres? Oh, something like that. When you're inside it, it looks convincingly like a forest. But if you're anywhere else, it's like, oh. Yeah, they built houses right up to the edge of it. And there's this one hill. It's like the one hill that isn't CGI. And you can look out and you can see to and across the river from it. I mean, it's it's not big. No. Oh, good. Sorry. Say, I've, but on the, other, on the other hand, America has proper forests in some places. You know, we don't have any forests where you could get lost and die. Whereas, you know, that's a normal thing that you're worried about when you go into an American forest. These big scale. Yeah. I used to live in Spokane. It's a... Uh, it's still in the Rockies and the Spokane Mountain Valley is like, I'm pretty sure you can take the whole of the British Isles and put it on top of the Spokane Mountain Valley and not really have to touch any of the snow caps. And it is phenomenally mm. large. It's not Alaska large, but ugh. and then Montana, all of Western Montana is just trees, deer and snow, like a thousand miles it's, of it. Ugh. It's kind of fascinating and f- fear inducing the idea that you could 
not you know, in a British forest, you just pick a direction and walk in that direction and you and you will come across a road. You know, up in Scotland, maybe you might have to walk for half a day, but really nothing bigger than that. And there's nearly always a road that cuts through the middle because it's in the way. Yeah, the world is certainly becoming more tame. I mean, even like Oman. I went to Oman and because I'm a geologist, I went up all the mountains and explored everywhere I could get to. And then I've heard from people years later that, yeah, they built a road up there and they've now got a hotel up there. And it was sort of sad to me that to think that this was politely wilderness. You know, it was very difficult to get to in 50 degree heat. And we walked all day and carried all of our water. And now you just get in the four wheel drive and burn up to a hotel. Mako, looks like you had a question. Mm, no, not a question. Just thinking about an anecdote where, uh, not specifically in the United States, but in Canada, I once literally almost got lost in a wooded area in the mountains right as it was becoming nightfall. Pretty scary experience. I've done something similar. I was, I'd been collecting rocks in France on my own and I decided to take a shortcut back to the car because it was getting late and uh, they'd been felling trees and not clearing them. So I started, I got into the middle of this small patch of wood, maybe, I don't know, a few tens of acres. And uh, yeah, I had to climb over a big log and then I had to climb over another big log. And I'm carrying about 20 kilos, uh, 40 pound of rock on my back. And uh, it was quite hard. And then I came to an area with trees that were crisscrossed on top of each other. And it was getting to be really hard to go across each one. And I was going down to the ground level in between and then climbing up two or three trees to get over the next one. And then the sun started to go down and I couldn't see very clearly. And I thought this would be the saddest and most pathetic way to die. Goodness. But I did get out in the end, but God, I was covered in sweat and it, part of that was fear. I, I had a very different emotional experience outside, not fearful. I'm glad you survived. Um, Me too. Mine, mine was more seeing the... <laughs> uh, I'm terrible at segues. No, m mine was was the opposite. It was the awe and splendor of nature. I was a uh, it was another one of these cross country trips. I was in the middle of nowhere, Colorado. I think Wyota County. If anyone wants to look that up on a map, and uh, it was like two a.m. and I just, I just had to get some, catch some sleep. I was almost where I needed to be. I decided to take a little nap. I just pulled over to the side of the road. I took a couple hours of nap, uh, and still before the sun came up, uh, I went to start my car, and it just wouldn't start. So I just got out and waited for someone to come by, and uh, I stared up at the stars. And it was a perfectly clear night. There wasn't a light for miles, and I could see all the stars you can't see when you're in a city. Right? Every I could see the Milky Way like more vibrantly than I'd ever seen it. I saw all sorts of little swirls and amazing things in the night sky. Then eventually a Wyota County Sheriff came along and gave me a jump start, and I got on my way. But yeah, I was never really in danger like you or Mako were, I hope. Awesome to see. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome to see a really, really clear night sky. Yeah. I saw it for the first time, saw the Milky Way for the first time in Oman, way out in the desert. The only thing that spoils it there is the oil industry who have giant gas flares on the horizon. 